Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, on Saturday night, our employers very nearly pulled it off. Uh, they nearly managed to, to have the perfectly timed broadcast a, a 7 p.m start time three fights done and dusted by 9 30 eastern if they can just do something about the ultimate 1 30 a.m east coast <laughs> finish time we'd be in great shape uh in all seriousness congratulations to everyone involved in pulling off that mammoth undertaking of a card but how about eric i know this is a well that we keep returning to but how about a gentle proposal that all cards begin at 7 p.m. Eastern in future, even those without six fights and half-time <laughs> intermissions. Here, here. The motion is seconded. The motion is approved. Uh, <laughs> e- e- even coming off a, a short night of sleep on Friday into Saturday, I was fueled by evening coffee and evening black ant pills, uh, feeling pretty good when we hit the intermission. Uh, and, and I exchanged some tweets with some people on the West Coast who objected to the early start because it's uh. 4 o'clock out there, not ideal, but I suggested DVR it, stay off Twitter, and start it whenever you want. On the East Coast, I don't have the option to watch it before it happens. I, I'm, I'm not a T-1000. I don't have a flux capacitor. But on the West Coast, you can watch it after it happens. Now, the pushback on that was nobody wants to do a pay-per-view party not in real time. And to that I say, you shouldn't be having a pay-per-view party exactly. right now. Don't let other people in your house. As long as COVID is going on, 7 p.m. Eastern start times for all fight cards, not just pay-per-views, but all fight cards, that's the rule. I'm putting my foot down. My foot is down. The foot has spoken. There you go. Unfortunately, you put the foot down, and you're so tired that the foot has stayed there and fallen asleep like the rest of you. But oh well. Yes. The foot hit the floor, and then my whole body hit the floor. <laughs> I am podcasting with my head on the floor. There you go. Uh, well, you know, after all the build-up and anticipation, the Showtime Charlo Twins twin bill has come and gone, and it mostly delivered. Off yeah. um, the six fights on the card, uh, three ended inside the distance, one way inside the distance. Uh, none of the three decisions went to the wrong guy, uh, although there was at least you know one somewhat hinky card in there, maybe a couple, which is par for the course these days. Um, all is right in the world again, because I had a scorecard that exactly matched Steve Weisfeld's. <laughs> um, the whole thing concluded with one of the most remarkable knockouts you're ever likely to see, no matter how much boxing you watch. Uh, and the stars of the show, Jamal and Jamel Charlo, got what they wanted. Clear, unambiguous, defining victories. Uh, in the first half main event, Jamal scored what is really, I think, his first win as a middleweight against the top opponent, uh, emerging with a hard-fought but deservedly clear unanimous decision win over Sergei Derevyanchenko. And in the final bout on the card... To give you a little sense of how late it was, unspooled just as a friend of mine on board a ship off the coast of the Arctic archipelago of Svalbard was texting me as he sipped his early morning coffee. <laughs> Jamel Charlo dropped Jason Rosario three times, put him down for good just seconds into the eighth round with, of all things, a literally convulsive jab to the stomach. Uh, we will look at both of those fights shortly. Uh, but first, Eric, let's talk about the four undercard bouts, uh, three of which were contested at 122 pounds. The first of which, though, was a bantamweight special attraction that actually, at the end of the day, for one of the combatants, must not have felt very special at all. You must be talking about Duke Micah, my regrettable upset pick. 
Uh, I thought I saw something in the undefeated but untested Micah that suggested he could hang with veteran Filipino contender John Riel Casimero. But I also hedged a bit by noting that Casimero is a spectacular knockout puncher, and it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him decimate Micah at any point in the fight. And it turned out to only take him three rounds, uh, and the fight was really effectively over in round two. Of the six fights on this card, this was the only one that wasn't competitive. Midway through round two, Casimero rocked the Ghanaian with a left hook. He went down. He got up. Ref Steve Willis thought about stopping it, but let it go on. But Micah never got his legs back under him. Uh, He bought himself a little time by swinging, missing, and falling late in round two. But 54 seconds into round three, Casimero landed an uppercut combination, and Willis wisely jumped in with Micah still on his feet. And it was Casimero who left his feet, dropping to the canvas to perform some one-armed push-ups. Micah falls to 24-1. and Casimero is now 30-4 and and scored his 21st knockout. Kieran... Was this more a matter of Micah not belonging in the ring with a world-class opponent, or Casimero just being a freak puncher? And does Casimero now look like a viable opponent for Naoya Inoue, the man he was supposed to face in April before COVID shook up the schedule? So I do think it was primarily a case of Micah not quite being on the on a high enough level. But as you notice, Casimiro does have that one punch power when he's able to deliver it. I mean, the, the reason that he had put himself in a uh, position for a shot at Inoue after all was was he splattered Zolani Tete, right. who was actually on a really good run at the top of the 118-pound division himself. It was absolutely no mug at all. So I'm not entirely sure that Saturday night tells us a great deal that we didn't already know or suspect about Casemiro's chances with an outway. Um, you know, in Oway is obviously far too good technically to leave Casemiro with the kind of openings he was able to take against Micah. Um, he's so strong um, that, you know, punches he is going to land aren't just going to sort of bounce off the Filipino the way Micah's did. Um, with that kind of one-punch power that he has, Casemiro is potentially a threat to anybody. But look, I know he... F- Clearly felt that he had his guy beaten, and especially like especially once he dropped him the first time, and he became super relaxed, feeling that there was no danger of anything coming back at him. But he will need to perform with far less abandon if he is to have a hope in hell of upsetting the monster. He was way too wide open, way too off balance. His feet were way off being set at times when he was going about it. Again, I know he basically felt for the last you know, round or so that he was hitting a punching bag. He had nothing to worry about. But he likes to make put on a good show. He's going to have to tighten that up considerably if he's going to have a chance against the note away. Um, you know, it, it was almost amateurish at times. I thought you know, at the end of it that that was a little bit under three rounds that was tremendously fun and also just tremendously awful at the same time. <laughs> um, uh, so, yes, uh, the, the thing with Casemiro, though, is, look, he's charismatic, he's entertaining, he looks to provide fireworks. Had there been a crowd there, we would have been off and running with some tremendous energy uh, yeah. in that venue. He would have really kicked the pay-per-view off well. Uh, he did what you want a pay-per-view opening fighter to do. I went about business, uh, uh, did it swiftly, did it spectacularly. Um, so, you know, he, he definitely did what he was brought in to do. Um, 
after that quick and one-sided opener, uh, the card next gave us the first of the £322 bouts. Uh, it proved to be more competitive than either of us anticipated, I think it's fair to say. Uh, unbeaten Texas prospect slash title holder, which says everything you want to know about the state of boxing. Uh, Brandon, the heartbreaker Figueroa, uh, took on once beaten Damian Vasquez. Uh, Vasquez started quite well. Uh, he won some rounds. Uh, it was a fun action fight. But by the middle rounds, uh, the underdog was slowing, his right eye was swelling, and Figueroa just kept opening up more and more. <sighs> Referee Gary Rosado or Vasquez's corner could have honestly should have stopped it either in or immediately after round nine, which would have given you three bonus points in our picks competition. But it's a sign of how, how, how easily they could have stopped it. That even knowing that was the case, uh, I was thinking they need to step in here. This boy's going to get damaged. Um, but they let it go until a combination to the body at 118 of round 10 prompted resided to halt the bout. Uh, honestly, the end seemed insight actually even well before that ninth, Vasquez started well, but as we said, the victor rather seemed certain from about round six on. Um, I wasn't very happy with Vasquez's corner here. I don't think they did the young man any favors. Um, they could have actually pulled him before round nine. They could have pulled him after eight. He was starting to look unhappy. He was he was getting badly hurt. They certainly should have pulled him after nine. Yeah. Um, as to Figueroa, I don't know that I'm... That his last couple fights, I'm no longer quite so certain that I'm high on him. You know, once he gets going, he's got that head of steam on him. He can be a real force. But until he gets there, he can look awkward and forced. There were times on Saturday night where his distance was all wrong. His balance was wrong. He was leaning forward. He, he wasn't compact. And then suddenly he seemed to get his range and off he went. And then that was it. Anyway, uh, Vasquez... Falls to 15, 2 and 1. Figueroa is now 21, 0 oh, and 1 with 16 stoppages. Um, I saw that you compared Brandon to his older brother Omar on Twitter during the fight. And knowing how you feel about Figueroa Frere, I have to assume that's not exactly a compliment. So, what did you think of Figueroa's performance? Uh, and is Vasquez someone you'd like to see get another shot on Showtime, presumably after he's had a chance to recover from his beating? Yeah, answering the last question first, because it's a quick and easy one to answer. Yeah, Vasquez proved a quality fighter. I'd give him some time off to recover from this. Uh, but then he is absolutely someone who should be in a showbox main event or co-feature his next fight. He, he's built for showbox, uh, in my yeah. view. Um, so, yeah, I compared Brandon to big bro Omar. And for all of my criticisms over the years of Omar Figueroa, I always recognized him as an entertaining fighter. So it's partially a compliment here. Brandon made this fight more fun to watch than it had to be. Yeah. Uh, but he also left me with serious doubts about his ceiling. Now, as long as he keeps showing up in top shape, his ceiling remains higher than Omar's. But he's too easy to hit, and he isn't showing that something special that allows him to separate against B-level opposition like Vasquez, like Julio Ceja. Uh, early on in this fight, Figueroa seemed to be making a huge mistake by fighting as a southpaw so much. Yeah. It worked out okay for him offensively, but defensively, Vasquez was loving it, and he couldn't miss when Figueroa went southpaw. Um, but you know, Figueroa's offense was good, and I guess he wasn't worried about Vasquez's power. He would get out-jabbed a lot, but he was landing the better power shots and the better body shots, and in the middle rounds, uh, as he was taking over, it was also becoming just an outstanding action fight. Uh, it, it was really fun to watch, even as it grew increasingly one-sided. Mm. By the eighth, 
Vasquez's right eye looked Rocky Balboa-esque. Uh, and I'm referring to the first fight with Apollo, so you, you should get the reference, ah. Kieran. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, Vasquez really couldn't see the left hands. In round nine, Figueroa landed what Moro called a buffet of jabs. I like that. Uh, but uh, once again, Kieran... Your nefarious ways worked for you. You clearly paid off Gary Rosado <laughs> to, you know, just as Figaro was closing in on the KO9 that was my pick, Rosado stepped in to separate the fighters and shoved Figueroa to the canvas, which bought Vasquez time at a key moment. You will stop at nothing, Mulvaney! <laughs> yeah, the fight went on a couple minutes longer than it needed to, but Figueroa got the win. He remains a young fighter you want to see. But at this point, I don't see him having much of a chance against the elite of the 122-pound division. His defense needs some work. We're seeing the level at which his skills and talents are starting to look kind of ordinary. Moving on. Listeners may recall that I said in previewing the card that I preferred the second half undercard bouts to the first half undercard bouts. But actually, the first half exceeded my expectations. Casimero, Micah was a mismatch, but it was quick and entertaining. You touched on sort of the it's fun and awful all at the same time. <laughs> I, I leaned a little more toward the fun side of things. And we just talked about the surprisingly good action in Figueroa's fight. Um, so the first half uh, w- came in a little higher than I thought. The second half was more of a mixed bag, a full 24 rounds as it was getting late on the East Coast. And one of the two fights was rather disappointing. But we start with the better of the two bouts. Danny Roman and his ill-advised attempt at a mustache versus veteran former belt holder Juan Carlos Payano. At age 36, Payano turned the, back the clock a little bit. Uh, his, his hands were faster than Roman's. I was surprised by that. He was doing well over the first eight rounds. I had him up 6-2 to two at that point. But Roman swept the final four rounds. And it turned out the judges all had it even through eight, so we ended up with unanimous scores of 116-112 for Roman, which was lucky for me, as that was my exact pick. And it arguably could have been a draw, or at least a majority decision win, or or something to cost me some points. Um, Based on the way I scored it, Piano kind of pulled a mini version of Oscar De La Hoya versus Tito Trinidad. Not that he was running, but he took his foot off the gas and lost the entire last third of the fight. That said, he's in the back half of his his 30s. Maybe he just couldn't keep his foot on the gas no matter what. And certainly, Roman's steady body attack helped slow him down. This wasn't a thriller, but it was a tense, close, well-fought boxing match. Payano drops to 21-4 with the defeat. Roman advances to 28-3-1. Kieran, how did you score it? What did you like out of Roman? And does this impact your interest in a rematch with Akhmedaliev one way or the other? So I had it 115-113 for Roman. Um, I think I saw signs of a Roman comeback maybe like a round or two earlier than you did. I, I had Roman down 4-1 through the first five rounds. Uh, but then I think I only gave Payano round eight out of the, the back seven. Um, that said, the first two rounds that I had Roman winning, six and seven, were super close. Mm. Um, I wouldn't have been surprised or appalled if, if you or anyone else had them differently. Um, it clearly took Roman a good long while to deal with Payano's movement. Um, I was impressed, actually, with the way that Payano came out of the gate and the way, way he went about his business. He was aggressive without being careless. He showed excellent ring movement while still being able to be on the front foot. He fought the fight at least initially on his geographical terms. 
uh, until slowly, sort of almost imperceptibly, I thought Roman began to close the gap enough to start reaching him and especially to start touching him to the body. It was Piano who was doing the very visible body work early on. But then Roman did was clearly starting to reach him and get him there. The, those pun- his punches had a little bit less torque to them than Piano's did, but they were happening. Um, and, and I think that's what started the change. Uh, sort of almost imperceptibly, you know, once he started to do that, that sort of started the chain reaction. You know, Piano just started slowing just a bit. That made it easier, I thought, for Roman to get in range and land his punches more. That made Piano a bit more reluctant to sort of let his hands go the way that he had earlier, which allowed Roman to get in more offense and so on. Uh, you could also tell, I think, by Piano's reaction to his cut, and I think it was round 10, that the tide had turned somewhat and that Piano was the one who was feeling uncomfortable in there. Um, maybe, you know, no longer quite had it together mentally in there. Whereas, you know, Roman just kept coming. It, it sort of appeared early as if there could be an upset brewing. And I did definitely find myself sort of mentally second guessing my statement in our final preview, where I said that Roman's action, all action style would catch up to him eventually, but not on Saturday night. And I thought to myself through about five rounds, I'm like, ah. <laughs> actually maybe we'll catch up to him on saturday night but he did he did begin slowly i thought reeling him in uh, and he squeaked uh, over the line and you could actually you know and you're right that it could very well have been a door majority decision he, he could actually make the case that it should have been a bit wider because he i thought he did knock piano down in that final second of the, of the round i thought that looked like a clear knockdown to me that perhaps should have been called a 10-8 in that very final round yeah uh, it was kind of a fascinating situation where the punch definitely landed before the bell I think he touched down maybe after the bell, right. and, I'm, and I'm not entirely sure what the rule is on no. that. So yeah, but uh, no, that, exactly. thankfully it was not it, it was not the deciding factor in the fight. But uh, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I think Payana was successful early because it was like it was one of those classic styles make fights matchups, wasn't it? Roman always does better. He's the kind of guy who will do better against someone who will fight him uh, in the pocket, uh, and I think it worked out for Roman later because, as you alluded to, Payana was 36. Um, you know, and he just couldn't necessarily keep that effort going, especially once Roman began to to to, to hit him. Um, so, what's next for Danny Roman? So, it didn't make me feel any greater desire for an Akhmadaliev rematch. I still think, you know, if that option presents itself and it works for both guys, it, that first fight was exciting enough and close enough that he merits it. Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting thing that I did think about, which I think was a good idea for Danny Roman. I'm not sure that it's a good idea for the other guy. Um, what about him against Figueroa? Um, you know, maybe Figueroa saw signs of vulnerability in Danny Roman that he feels he'd be able to exploit. I'm sure Danny Roman looks at Brandon Figueroa and thinks he can eat him up. And I do think that that style matchup would be highly intriguing because yeah. Brandon Figueroa does not fight to his strengths and he somewhat fights to Danny Roman's strengths. I, we talked about this before in the preview that if I were Brandon Figueroa, I wouldn't necessarily go anywhere near Danny Roman. He might look at that again and think, oh, okay, maybe there's something to be done there. I don't think it would be a good idea for Figueroa, but I'd watch that fight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that could be quite entertaining and the prospect is a prospect slash belt holder. So there might be, if Roman were to take that fight and win it, it might give him a little bit of leverage in terms of maybe getting a rematch with an Akhmadaliev or something like that. Yeah, that's a pretty good idea. And I think you're right that it makes a little more sense for Roman than for Figueroa. But uh, I think it, it certainly has the potential to be a competitive and fun fight. Yeah, I think so. Um, 
On to the worst fight of the night, which, to be fair, is set against, we're grading on a curve here, and it was a very good night of boxing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's by no means the worst fight you'll ever see. But it was the worst fight of the night, both in terms of entertainment value and in terms of my unfortunate attempt at a bold prediction. Uh, Luis Nari against Aaron Alameda, a battle of unbeaten 122-pounders. It ended with Neri's hand being raised, but not in the show-stealing manner that I think many experts have predicted or expected. Uh, you and I were texting each other and saying, oh, thank heavens, you know, this is starting to go on a little bit too long. But one way or the other, we probably won't have to wait too long through this fight. And lo and behold, we were. Um, <laughs> they did not clash heads and end up with an early ending, as I predicted. Um, there wasn't an early Neri knockout, as many predicted. Uh, they did provide a less than scintillating clash of styles. Both boxing more than slugging. Neither man ever really clearly hurting the other, I think. In the end, Neri won a unanimous decision by scores of 15-13, 16-12, and the card that I thought was too wide, 118-110. Um, he improves to 31-0. Alameda is now 25-1. and I, I think you could say that Alameda's stock probably went up in defeat. Um, Neri's may go down a bit in victory, although I don't know that that's fair. It's a new weight for him with new trainers against a somewhat slippery opponent who proved to be better than advertised. It could have just been a slightly off night. Uh, Eric, you predicted the Neri knockout. Most people predicted the Neri knockout. You feeling a bit let down by the performance? Um, And where does he fit in now with the top 122 pounders, including uh, the two guys who I've already matched up together, uh, Danny Roman and Brandon Figueroa? Uh, so I am a little let down, although, you know, you can't knock out everybody. Alameda is a fellow Southpaw. He was looking to box and, and not to fight a high risk type of fight against Neri. So it's a tempered disappointment for me. Far from a disaster, just, you know, a little less than I was hoping for. He closed the distance in spots and there were times where I thought, okay, here he comes. He's going into ferocious Luis Neri attack mode now. And then it just wouldn't last. Um, he went to the body fairly well. He did have an excellent 12th round, which which kind of made me more frustrated because where was that aggression all night? Uh, but, but also, he was obviously pacing himself. And then when you get to round 12, you're kind of safe to let it all hang out. Um, fair to wonder if Neri is a little less of a puncher against junior featherweights than he had been against bantamweights. That's certainly possible when these guys move up in weight, they reach a a point at which their power stops being so spectacular relative to their opponents. But look, it's it's a perfectly passable performance. It's a a clear-cut win over an undefeated guy. And unfortunately, it tells us next to nothing about how Neri would do against the guys in the top five or so. Um, I'd pick him over Figueroa. Might be kind of a coin flip against Danny Roman, uh, which it's not great for Neri that I'm saying that because coming into this card, yeah. people would have made Neri a fairly clear favorite over Roman, and it's not like Roman was so spectacular in his fight. We've talked a lot lately about all the talent at 122. Navarrete, Akhmedaliev, Roman, Leo, Fulton. Neri fits in there somewhere, uh, but off this performance, I have no idea where. Uh, he, he beat Payano better than Roman did. Maybe Neri is the class of this division. He didn't look like it on Saturday night. Yeah. So if there's an MVP of this four-fight undercard, I guess I'd have to say it's Casimero, although maybe he just benefited from having the weakest opponent. What do you think, Kieran? Can you make a case for someone else, or does Casimero get the honor? Yeah, the uh, Jack Palance impersonation at the end of the fight, I think, 
clinches it for him. Uh, yeah, look, Figueroa really is, I think, the only other contender. But like as we discussed, he 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 looked at best so-so until he suddenly looked good. Um, uh, we've talked about Neri and felt that he underperformed relative to our expectations. Roman left it awfully late and close. So, yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think Casemiro wins the highly unofficial <laughs> Showtime Boxing Podcast undercard fighter of the night. Yes, and he, do- and he doesn't even uh, get a swag bag. Uh, for, Not even. For, for that exactly. one. Exactly. <laughs> uh, let's focus then on the two main events, uh, each featuring one of the Charlo twins, both of whom were looking for statement victories to stake their claim to be the top dog in their respective division. Uh, first up, Jamal. Facing perhaps the most difficult assignment of anybody on the card, at least on paper. Uh, he survived the predictably suffocating pressure of Sergei Darevianchenko to retain a middleweight strap. Um, Charlo came into the contest with some clear physical advantages over his five foot nine opponent, in both height and in reach. He made the best use of them when he could, spearing Darevianchenko with a firm jab to keep him at range. And then when the Ukrainian inevitably began his process of slipping inside and putting the pressure on and fighting at closer range, really using his leverage well to fire counter left hooks and uppercuts off his opponent's chin. Uh, he wobbled Derevianchenko a couple of times, notably at the end of round three and at the end of round eight, uh, withstood some intense Derevianchenko pressure, particularly around the middle rounds. And again in the final frame, but he busted up uh, Derevianchenko's face really pretty badly. Uh, and he wound up with a unanimous decision win by scores of 116-112, 117-111, and 118-110. Uh, with the win, Charlo moves to 31-0 with 22 KOs. I scored the fight 117-111, the same as Steve Weisfeld. Uh, Eric, how did you score it? How did Charlo secure the win? What did you think? And where does this leave him in the middleweight division? So I was one round off from your card and the Weisfeld card. I had the Tim Cheatham card, 116-112, 8-4, I thought 118-110 was a little unfair to Drevyanchenko, mm-hmm. but not unreasonable. There was some really high-level boxing on yes. display here. We saw Drevyanchenko jabbing his way inside like a true pro. We saw Charlo hooking off the jab. There were chess elements going on here, but at the same time, there was excellent action. Yeah. I think this has to be a contender for fight of the year so far, in a thin field to this point, admittedly. But... Certainly, this is somewhere in the top three or four fights I've seen so far in 2020. Uh, You know, how did Charlo secure the win, you asked? Uh, A few ways that he separated himself. Top-tier counterpunching. He got really good at timing Derevyanchenko with hooks coming in as the fight went along. Uh, By staying calm and having confidence in his chin and not letting Sergei's pressure rattle him. By busting up Derevyanchenko's face, that always makes your job easier when the the other guy is cut and swollen and starts having trouble seeing the punches coming. And Charlo took advantage by smartly using the right hand more as the left eye closed. It was such a strong all-around performance by Charlo. He knows what his strengths are. He fought his fight. He he fought very much within himself. You know, he played it safe at times during the last two rounds when he was clearly on his way to victory. Even though he didn't get the knockout, this was probably the best, certainly the most complete performance of Charlo's career. Given the quality of his opposition here and the fact that he did better against Derevyanchenko than either Golovkin or Jacobs did, when we said coming in, those were the obvious measuring sticks, I think I'd be inclined to rank Jamal second at middleweight behind only Canelo, who is the lineal champ at 160. So Jamal is his top contender now, in my view. Uh, and I know you asked me about, you know, his place in the middleweight division, not pound for pound, 
But I'm going to talk about pound for pound anyway because I think he's part of that conversation now. He doesn't crack my top 10. He probably needed the knockout to do that overnight. But he was never in the conversation for me before Saturday night. Now he is. All in all, just an outstanding night for Jamal Charlo. Are you giving him the same high grades that I am? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've really been thinking about, you know, we, we were thinking about this beforehand. What would this mean for him? Specifically, first of all, in the middleweight division. Uh, I, I'm somewhat working on the assumption that Canelo is leaving or has left the middleweight division, which may or may not be fair, right? I think Canelo said that he sees himself as a middleweight, even though he was recently up at 175 and there had been discussions of him to fight someone at 168. If we assume that Canelo is mostly a 168 fighter now who will occasionally go up or down, then that really only leaves Golovkin, I think, as Charlo's rival atop the middleweights. Um, and you look at Gennady, based off the closeness of his win over Drevianchenko, as you alluded to, you know, closer than expected wins over, over Jacobs and even Kelbrook. It, it's easy to assume Golovkin's in decline there. But he did also go basically even up against Canelo. I think I think Golovkin's next fight against Camille Zaramada will tell us a lot about where he is right now. But I honestly think that even when he was at his pomp, and there was probably no bigger Golovkin booster than me, there was always a bit of a feeling that the Charlos might be the ones to give him fits. And it's not just because Charlo is tall and strong. I mean, Golovkin's beaten strong tall guys before. Right. It's the way that Charlo really maximizes those physical strengths. It's, it's the intelligence with which he approaches uh, the sport. You know, he's so much more than a guy who uses his size and uses his strength. And you talked about this. He has this tremendous combination, which he showed on Saturday night, of accuracy, uh, punch selection, um, power, and also very, very good defense. He was blocking and slipping a lot of Derevianchenko's offense. And I, what I thought was a very impressive manner in that fight. Yeah. Um, Honestly, unless Golovkin shows otherwise in a couple months, and unless Canelo like firmly returns to 160, yeah, I would definitely consider Charlo the standard bearer at middleweight right now. And yeah, I agree with you that a knockout would have, you know, absolutely sort of sealed the deal. But in a strange way, it was a more complete performance and a more impressive victory the way it was than if he had, in fact, knocked Derevianchenko out. This was just a very, very... It was a very mature yeah. performance, yeah. as well as being like a very strong one. Uh, this was, you know, I think we might have even used the term, would this be a coming-of-age performance for him? It was. This was it. This was the moment where Charlo said, yeah, you wondered if I had it, if I was any good, that you hadn't seen me up against anybody any good for a while. This is what I can do. I think he laid down a very, very significant marker on Saturday night. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about the guy on the other side of the equation, Derevyanchenko. The loss dropped him to 13-3 and three with 10 knockouts, and he's now 1-3 in his last four fights. He's clearly an excellent fighter, uh, and although he brings the pressure, he isn't just a straight-ahead slugger. He really lives up to his nickname of the technician. But the fact remains that he has fought three times now for one belt or another at middleweight, and perhaps more relevantly, has fought three times against undeniably top-shelf talent in Jacobs, Golovkin, and now Charlo. Fought to a very close split decision loss against Jacobs. Dropped a unanimous decision, but arguably deserved a win against Triple G. But he was ultimately clearly beaten here. Uh, and, and he took a lot of punishment. So much that I, I thought a corner stoppage might be coming mm -hmm. at certain points mm -hmm. late in the fight. And he's 34 years old. So... 
what does the future hold for Sergei Derevyanchenko? Yeah, look, I mean, once again, Derevyanchenko had some really strong moments when he was able to get going. I mean, like you said, there was some real technical mastery to that aggression. Um, he was doing a beautiful job of feinting as his, on his way in, feinting with a left and then throwing a right uh, when Charlo reacted. And that was, you know, one of the ways in which he was able to work his way in, despite, mm -hmm. you know, having those obvious physical disadvantages. When he did get through, he was super effective. In round six, the 27 Connects he scored, that was the highest number of punches anyone's landed in a round against Charlo. But like you said, he took some real punishment on his way in. My goodness me. And he was a mess during and afterward. And, and that kind of punishment, you know, especially when it comes so soon after a bruising fight he had with Golovkin, that can really take a lasting toll. Um, you know, I think there was some, some talk about, well, you, you know, could we see if he could make 154? Maybe that's his problem because he's just not a big middleweight. But truth be told, the guys at junior middleweight aren't really any smaller than the ones at 160. Uh, there are plenty of guys who are just as long and lean as Jamal Charlo, such as, for example, Jamal Charlo. <laughs> right. um, and the overall depth of talent at the top of 154 is surely greater than at 154 than at 160. So is just in this really unfortunate situation that he's, he's a small middleweight, certainly a small modern middleweight, but would probably struggle to make junior middle. He, he's come along at a time where he could beat just about everybody at middleweight except the very best. And it just so happens that of late, the middleweight division has had three or four people who are the very best at that top division and then everyone else. And he just can't get those past those top three or four. His style and strength is enough to give anyone fits, but it's just as demanding on him as it is on his opponent. Yeah. Um, it's a nightmare to fight. And now having fallen, now that he's fallen short three times at world level, what leverage does he have to make anyone fight him and go through that? Yeah. Um, Honestly, it seems weird to say because he's such a good fighter, but it's in a place where you wonder what's left for him now. I mean, he could keep beating up B-level guys. Uh, he could try his luck if he can make it in a packed junior middleweight division. Or, and again, this seems strange to say, given how good he is, he could count his money and move on to something else. Hmm. He might actually want to give serious thoughts options. Three, he's not washed. He's not shot. He's just in this really difficult position of, what punishment does he want to take and is it worth it to him at this point it's a damn shame because he's a hell of a talent but this is a rough business and the way that he fights he might risk getting some long-term damage to be honest yeah i, I feel bad for the guy uh, in I this do. in this era when barely world-class boxers are routinely cherry-picking some yeah. version of a so-called world title Drevyanchenko keeps taking on these elite opponents and can't get over the hump. And in that way, he reminds me of Obakar, the, the 90s welterweight who came up short against Trinidad, De La Hoya, and Ike Corte, but clearly was good enough to hold a title if he fought the right opponent at yeah. the right time. We'll see if this fight took anything out of Drevyanchenko. That's, that's a big question. If not... I don't see why he can't get another crack at a belt a couple of fights from now. Uh, and maybe he'll be able to find a, a weak fringe interim mm. title holder or something that he can bump off. Like, you know, Rob Brandt and Ryota Murata held right. a belt at the weight. Why can't Trevianchenko? Yeah. Um, he was so game against Charlo. I thought he won the 10th round as a one-eyed fighter. Uh, that, that round really impressed me. I would guess Trevianchenko 
will remain a top tier middleweight for a few more years if he does choose to keep fighting in this division. But you hinted at this with three losses now. He's probably never getting a mega money fight. Uh, certainly, I, I don't think a guy like Canelo, which is where the money is mm-hmm. in the division, would really look at him after he's been beaten by all these other top middleweights. I don't see super fights in his future. I do see more quality fights if he wants them, unless it turns out that 12 rounds with Charlo took a ton out of him, which it certainly might have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's just, just a really tough position and just... A real entry in life just isn't fair. Right. Uh, it really, <laughs> really is. Um, and a lovely fellow, by the way, actually. Great to talk to, you know, uh, uh, when he's not trying to bash your brains in. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, in the main, main event, as it were, uh, we were treated to uh, an intriguing clash of styles and strategies. Uh, Jason Rosario stalked fairly relentlessly forward, looking to break down Jermel Charlo with a stiff jab and body shots that occasionally... Earned rebuke from referee Harvey Dock for straying a little too low. Uh, Charlie, in contrast, seemed patient, moving and waiting for his opportunities, and then sort of exploding with brief flurries of power punches. Uh, one such flurry dropped Rosario in the opening seconds of their bout. Uh, then a strong left hook with a follow-up right hand dropped Rosario hard at the end of round six. I felt for sure... This meant that I was in for some bonus points in our prediction contest as I had plumped for a Charlo KO in the seventh. But Jamel continued to bide his time and waited until just a few seconds into the eighth before dropping Rosario for good with, of all things, a jab to the pit of the stomach just above and, in fact, apparently even slightly on the belt line. It not only sent Rosario to his back, it kept him there and even sent him into convulsions as he presumably struggled to catch his breath. Eric, that knockout was so remarkable, so unique. I feel we have to begin there. I've never seen anything like that. I've seen, as of you, plenty of hooks to the liver or deep into the solar plexus that have left an opponent poleaxed. But I've never seen a punch like that delivered to that spot that had that kind of impact. Have you? I mean, what do you think happened for that punch to be so effective and oddly as unconventional as it is and not the kind of thing we think of when we think of knockouts of the year, is it the knockout of the year so far? Hmm. Um, so so all of the knockdowns in this fight were interesting in their own ways. That The one in the first round was interesting because yes. Rosario kind of tripped over the ropes and then, and then he got hit while he was down. Um, the one in the sixth was interesting because Rosario was having a good round and it landed with literally one second left and caused a three-point swing from 10-9 Rosario to 10-8 Charlo. And then, of course, the final one, the one you asked me about, uh, which luckily for me came a few seconds into round eight <laughs> and not with a few seconds to go in round seven. Uh, no, I, I have never seen that. Uh, it's the theater of the unexpected, they say. You do they often so. see things in this sport that you've never seen before. And a jab that caused convulsions is a new one. Um, And I'm not a doctor, nor am I a professional boxer, but I actually am somewhat qualified to weigh in on what happened with the effect of that punch. I can't recall if I've told this story before on a podcast, but I was once, back in my physical prime in my 20s, lightly sparring with my youngest brother. Uh, We had gloves, no headgear, so the rules were basically jabs and body shots only, And he landed a jab right to the pit of my stomach, and I went down, and I felt more or less okay, but the wind was knocked out of me, 
and I needed about 15 seconds to get up. Uh, and I was in good shape at the time. I had abs and whatnot. Uh, much more recently, I was playing baseball with my son. This was like three weeks ago. And I wasn't looking. He thought I was looking. He threw the ball, and I never saw it. He threw it fairly hard. Didn't see it. I just felt it. It hit me just below the rib cage, dead center, and I had to take a knee. It just completely took the wind out of me. It was about six inches higher than where Jermel's punch landed, and I wasn't convulsing. Uh, but the point is, body shots are unpredictable, and straight ones that can knock the wind out of you, it's a bizarre feeling. So, you know, I don't know exactly what was going on with Rosario physically in that moment. He looked like kind of looked like he was going to throw up almost. He, yeah. he was sort of like heaving, like almost retching. And he also kind of looked like a turtle stuck on his shell, struggling to flip himself back over. <laughs> I was thinking fish myself. Okay, so, yeah, that yes. works. <laughs> yeah. Um, absolutely bizarre. It wins the award for weird knockout of the year yeah. so far. Um, but no, I, I don't think it's knockout of the year. That's Povetkin White, in my view. This one can't compete with that one for me. Do you, do you disagree? Uh, it's it's has to be in consideration. Look, Povetkin's KO of White, I think, is was such a spectacular knockout and, and delivered so perfectly that it's going to be that would be very hard to beat in any year. But yeah, this thing has to absolutely be in consideration just because of its uniqueness. Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard or seen anything you know from Rosario to yeah uh, to explain you know from his perspective what happened. But but yeah, it's it, I don't think it was that he was having seizures or anything. But you know to follow on from the point that you were talking with with what you'd experienced, it was just a body that was desperate to get some air and right. short circuited without having any. Um, you could tell, couldn't you? Even when he insisted on standing because he's obviously proud, you could tell he had that look on his face, like. Like, I'm just going to stand here and it's going to be okay. And you know that his body just desperately wanted to curl up in the fetal position. (laughs) Just desperately. And man, oh man, look, Jason Rosario is a tough, tough man. Anyone who steps between the ropes is a tough, tough person. Um, And and he especially. So you get a poleaxe like that, no matter how innocuous that shot might have seemed, that wasn't an innocuous shot. Um, that was just a clearly a perfectly delivered punch. Yeah. All right. So with the win, Jermel Charlo moves to 34 and one with 18 KOs while dropping Rosario to 20 wins, two losses, one draw, 14 KOs. Charlo now holds three of the four alphabet belts at junior middleweight. Patrick Teixeira holds the other one. So, uh, yeah, alphabets, fun. Uh, But more relevantly to me, this was a meeting of the number one and number two men at the weight, according to Ring Magazine. We asked in our preview podcasts whether Charlo would be able to emerge from this contest as the clear top dog in the division. So did he? And uh, what would you like to see from him next, Kieran? Uh, To take the first part first, yeah, I think he did. Um, he met all the criteria we asked of him in advance, I think. Uh, What I liked was how patient he was. He had a game plan and he stuck to it. Um, Although, of course, boxing like that gets you plaudits when you finish the job the way he did. Uh, Had it gone to the scorecards, had it been basically even, except for, you know, Charlo scoring a couple of knockdowns, it would still have been a very good win. But it might have been a good win with people feeling a bit frustrated that he hadn't maybe let his hands go more. Um... But given particularly what Rosario did to J-Rock the last time out, I, I think he gets the extra credit for that. Look, we appreciate patient, skillful boxers with a plan, 
but we want them viscerally to to actually go out there and engage you know especially when it's 2 a.m on the east coast and, and we want to get to sleep but um look as it was he had the best of both worlds he was able to box smartly he was able to control the fight do just what he wanted to do escape without damage and score a spectacular highlight real KO over the guy who was supposedly like the number two in the division. Um, there were things I was making notes of during the fight that I would have liked him to have done. I wanted to see him punch with Rosario more rather mm. than wait until Rosario had finished and then, then unleash his flurries. But the thing is, when you end up finishing a fight the way that he did that, people like me who say things like that just sound like the worst kind of Monday morning quarterbacks. Um, he basically came away with the performance that he needed. Um, as for who's next, well, look, we've discussed this quite a bit already in the preview. Ericsson Lubin has dibs, um, but he hasn't done anything to suggest he really merits another shot or that he can reverse you know, that last, the last result. Um, I do not want to see uh, Jamel Charlo against Eris Landy Lara. Uh, I don't think that would be entertaining. You mentioned Patrick Teixeira. Um, he's the one guy who's ranked up there who apart from an eight-round win over Nathaniel Gallimore, hasn't been part of that whole carousel that all the others have been in. So just for novelty's sake, hmm. might be worth uh, a go. He's not remotely in Charlo's class. No. But if Charlo wants to add the final belt, and fighters like belts. We don't. They do. Um, what the hell? Maybe he might want to go for that. You know it would be fun, right? And I'm not saying that this is a challenge for him inside the ring, but... At this point, given that we've seen so many of the top dogs sort of fight each other and knock each other off, um, it almost feels as if now Jamel has planted his flag at, at the summit and it's up to him to say, all right, come and get me. Hmm. I think he's entitled to look for a fight that might earn him a bit of coin. You know that would be fun? Go to Australia and fight Tim Zhu. Hmm. Um Zoo doesn't have a prayer, but <laughs> right. the Aussies would lap it up, and he'd make some gate money too there, which is one place where he could still make some gate money if he wants to take that risk. And that gives the others, that just buys him a bit of time while the others fight each other a bit more, and we get the next worthy challenger to emerge out of the Heard, Harrison, Gallimore, Williams, uh, Castaño level, um, and then he can start fighting those worthy challengers again. But he's entitled, I think, to actually take a gimme like that for a bit of money if that's something that he wants to do. Because right now he's in the catbird seat. Yeah, um, I can't imagine any good reason why Tim Zeus people would want to rush him into a fight like that when they're trying to build this this potential major attraction star that they have. I, I think you're right that it would be, it would be kind of cool for Jamel if he could get it. Um, but nah, I don't, I don't really see that. Uh, I'll certainly agree with uh, the very first part of your answer to my question that Jamel is now the man at 154. I don't really think there's any dispute about that. Um, but I think it's fair to critique his performance a bit as you did and then said, you know, you don't feel like Monday morning quarterbacking, but just cause he got a good result doesn't mean that uh, it was a great performance all the way through. It was a very uneven performance. Uh, almost every round in which Jermel wasn't knocking Rosario down or out, <laughs> Rosario was winning on my card. Um, Jermel was, was having trouble figuring Rosario out at times. But like his brother, Jermel has this confidence that he can take the other guy's punch and that he'll just get the job done somehow eventually. Um yeah, I'm not sure what I want to see next from him. There is no obvious mega fight. You talked about Erickson Lubin. That rematch might be coming. We've discussed that plenty the last couple of weeks. It's fine. 
it's not exactly mouthwatering. Looks to me like the biggest fights for Jermel are either up one division or guys coming up one division to meet him. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, just, just trying to follow up this very good win with more very good wins while you wait for something huge to come along. I, I suspect that's the path he's going to go down. More fights right around this level for a little while because I don't see that mega fight for him. Um, so before we move on to other fight cards, a quick recap of the scoring in our picks competition. Kieran, you had that one-point lead coming into the week, 34-33. We each tried one long-shot upset and failed, but neither of us capitalized fully. You only got one point for your Casimero pick, and I only got one point for my Neri pick. The Figueroa fight was a wash. Both Charlo fights were a wash, but I got some big swing out of Roman Payano. I got three points for that unanimous decision to your one point for predicting a Roman stoppage win. So that means I go from down one point to up one point. I'm ahead 42-41. So go ahead and say it. I know you want to say it. You've been waiting all year. Just say it, Kieran. Finally, I have you exactly where I want you. <laughs> there it is. I've been uncomfortable in this front runner's role. Right. <laughs> We're poised now. All right. Um, the Showtime pay-per-view was by far the biggest event in boxing over the weekend. It wasn't the only one. Uh, in London, Josh Taylor, probably the best 140-pounder in the world right now, faced alphabet mandatory Appenon Kongzong and dispatched him with almost embarrassing ease in the first round with a left-handed body shot. Uh, in Germany, Marius Bredes and Yunel Dortikos finally got to square off in the much-delayed second-season cruiserweight final of the World Boxing Super Series. And it was the Latvian Bredis who took the win by majority decision, by a scores of 117-111 twice, and proving that bizarre COVID-era scorecards aren't solely an American phenomenon, 114-114. Eric, anything to offer on either of those? So you said Josh Taylor was probably the best 140-pounder in the world. I say definitely, uh, although this proved very little, except, again, body shots can do strange things to a man. Yeah. <laughs> um, we said last week that Kong Song looked like an easy mark. He was even easier than I might have mm. guessed. Hopefully, Taylor Ramirez happens next. And if the odds are remotely close, I am betting Taylor in that one. As for Bredas Dorticos, not much to say. Good, solid fight, competitive throughout, but Bredis clearly won it, was clearly the better man. He's now the Transnational Boxing Rankings Board champ at Cruiserweight, I believe. He's the class of the division. And those two cards of 117-111 were good. The 114-114 from Jörg Milke. Come on. I don't know why scoring has gotten worse in empty arenas without crowd yeah. noise to distract these guys. Yeah. But it has. Every week we're seeing one or two scorecards that just make no sense. Um, anyway, we saw some world-class action there. Uh, something a little different in Mexico on Friday night, where we saw a highly unusual father and son card. Beloved retired fighters Julio Cesar Chavez Sr. and Jorge Arce donned headgear and t-shirts and went hard at each other for four rounds. Uh, and after uh, the bell had rung to end a couple of those rounds, too. Uh, yeah. It was the kind of application and desire, even at an advanced age, that we associated with both fighters when they were at their peak. And then Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. came out to the ring and did exactly what we're used to him doing. He showed up to face Mario Cazares with bleach blonde hair and a strip of packing tape on his back, apparently to cover up a tattoo. He got cut, apparently from an accidental headbutt. He wanted out and basically quit, and he lost on a six-round technical decision. 
Is there anything else to say about Junior at this point? I mean, it's easy to make fun of Junior, and he deserves it, really. Although, sometimes I also think that given that he somehow keeps persuading promoters to give him money and keeps convincing fans to tune in, it's possible that the kid's a genius. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's easy to just write him off as the pampered son of a legend, but we forget there was a time when Junior could fight mm-hmm. and show that he was prepared to do what it took to fight. I mean, that stoppage of Andy Lee was a legitimately very good performance. Oh, yeah. But it was years and years ago, and, and that was his peak, and that was his last good performance. It's like having achieved that like he didn't want it anymore. He was afraid of success or afraid of failure or just afraid of hard work. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's like the kid wants to be a good boxer. He, he doesn't want to be a boxer. He wants to be a good boxer. But he doesn't want to work at being a good boxer. He just right. wants to show up and be good. And if he can't just automatically be good, then he just doesn't want to play at all. Um, <laughs> Except that he's trapped because he's the son of Julio Cesar Chavez. So what else is he going to do? Um, so, and it's worse because he doesn't just lose. He just stinks the place out. Um, it's, just, it's just all weird. And then there's this other element that goes along with him. Like he doesn't just lose. He doesn't just stink the place out. There's always something bizarre that goes yeah. along with it. There's you know, being stoned during training camp. Losing his paycheck after inviting call girls to his hotel room. Or... Wearing packing tape on his back, like he was doing the other night, um, apparently to cover up a tattoo. I, I wonder where it all ends up for him, actually. Not even just inside the ring, but out of it. I, I, part of me, sometimes, I think I almost feel sorry for him, because I'm not sure if he knows what else to do. And he can't really handle the pressure of being a legend son, so it's just more comfortable for him to not even try. Or then again, sometimes like, I'm just overanalyzing it, and he's just a kid who was a good fighter, but not a great one, who earned some money and didn't want to make extra effort anymore, but because of his name, has a sense of entitlement and keeps milking money out of people out of money. I don't know, really, but I don't want to watch him in the ring anymore. <laughs> I, but, I, but I felt that way for years. Right. You know who else doesn't want to watch him in the ring anymore? His dad? Yes, exactly. Poor, <laughs> poor Julio Sr. As a father of a son, I'm thinking about how I'd feel if my son grows up to be a really shitty half-assed podcaster, and how badly I'd want him to find another line of work if he repeatedly did a crap job. Um, you, you said a second ago, you know, you don't know how this ends. Here's how it has to end. Senior versus junior. Senior knocks his kid out and finally ends this charade. What do you think? Wow. It's boxing. It's not completely off the, pos- off the realm, outside the realm of possibility. They, it can happen. They can do it with t-shirts and headgear if they want, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. All oh, right. <laughs> uh, let's move on to the news. And uh, I, I'd like to say that it's a, it, uh, about to get better after having to talk <laughs> about uh, Chavez Jr., but maybe not. We start with an item that is extremely 2020. Conor McGregor, who recently declared another retirement from the UFC, announced that he will be boxing Manny Pacquiao in the Middle East next year. We might have been able to ignore that news on this podcast if that was as far as it went, but a Pacquiao spokesperson confirmed it, saying, for the sake of all the Filipino COVID-19 victims, Senator Manny Pacquiao will be fighting UFC superstar Conor McGregor next year. (sighs) So, uh, Kieran, you uh, ready to have a take on this yet? Uh, I don't know if you can hear it or not, but this is me, like, rubbing my brow. I'm just, I don't know. Um... (laughs) Okay, first of all, we'll see if it really happens, right? right. So right. no talk of any promoter's name attached to this, or any money people, 
or actual location. Boxers saying that something is going to happen frequently means Jack, even when they're really big name boxers or not actually boxers at all, as in the case with Conor McGregor. Um, the one saving grace, if it does happen, is that the build-up will be infinitely less obnoxious than Mayweather-McGregor because Pacquiao won't engage in any trash talk, let alone descend into the, the vilest of gutters that, that, that Mayweather and McGregor went into. But we'll see. I'm getting weary of these like fake novelty fights already, <laughs> yeah. and hardly any of them have actually even happened yet. <laughs> right. So I don't know. I guess I'll think about it when I have to. What about you? So I have two quick thoughts. Uh, whether we like it or not, and to be clear, we don't like it. Um, <laughs> but whether we do or don't, spoiler alert, <laughs> it is a huge event if it happens, and a lot yeah. of people will make a lot of money, including sharp sports bettors, if they set Manny's odds near where they set Floyd's odds. Yes. Um, and the other thought is there's perhaps a touch more danger here for McGregor because Manny is a more aggressive fighter yeah. than Floyd was. Mayweather was never likely to seriously hurt Connor. Pacquiao might. Mm. Floyd went into it, I think, looking to carry Connor yeah. and have some fun with the whole thing. Whereas, yeah, I'm not sure Manny will do that at all. But Connor might make the mistake of hitting Manny, in which case he'll be in really big trouble. Right. <laughs> all right, moving on. Uh, one fight of real note next weekend we should flag as uh, Jose Cepeda takes on Ivan Baranchik on ESPN Plus on Saturday. So look out for that. Uh, looking at fights a little further down the road. Alexander Usyk, Derek Chisora, which had originally been slated for May 23rd, has now been officially rescheduled for October 31st. Although any hope of having fans in attendance may well have evaporated as the British government, we talked about this possibly happening a week or so ago, has reimposed restrictions in the light of, of crowds gathering in the light of a new surge in COVID infections over there. Um, according to Mike Carpenter at The Athletic, uh, Terence Crawford and Kel Brook, uh, we talked about this as a possibility. They now look set to square off on November 14th. And one week after that, we already talked about this fight. Gennady Golovkin may finally find himself across the ring from Camille Azarameda. Um That fight, of course, would be on DAZN. Uh, Carpenter also reporting that the, the ongoing story, we've, we've talked far less about Canelo Alvarez in the ring over the course of this podcast than we have about everything that it has taken for him to be in, get into the ring. Yeah. Um, but uh, he is apparently or was engaged uh, last week in lengthy mediation talks with his promoter, Golden Boy Promotions, and DAZN. Uh, DAZN apparently offering Canelo reduced terms of $20 million per fight, but with back-end money based on the number of subscriptions he brings, greater flexibility in selection of opponents. A uh, few things to chew over there, some actual fights, some speculation about all kinds of other things. Anything you want to add there? Well, I'm glad to hear that they have a date for Usyk Chisora. Uh, that's that's a fight that will tell us something about yeah. how big a threat Usyk is to the top heavyweights. I have nothing new to say about Crawford Brook or the or the Triple G fight. Really, uh, it's been a long show and a long week. Uh, I'll, I'll glide right on by <laughs> We're those. <tired> and cranky. <laughs> yes, um, but Canelo warrants a quick comment. Uh, this is interesting. Oscar's BSE sounding comment about. The lawsuit needing to be refiled might open the door for it not to need to be refiled, that maybe they can take this opportunity to work it out. Turns out he wasn't totally full of crap. Um, I don't love the financial incentive if I'm Canelo. You know, unless you're fighting Triple G, I'm not sure you're selling many new subs that haven't already purchased a DAZN sub. Um, But then again, as we've said, Canelo clearly wants to fight. So maybe 
he's seeing that sacrificing some money is a better path than sitting out a while and being tied up in litigation. Maybe he has blinked first here. If so, that's good for boxing fans. The sport needs Canelo Alvarez active. That's absolutely true. Completely agree with that. All right. That will do it for this edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thank you so much for joining us over the past week of Preview Pod. Special thanks to Raul Marquez for bringing his expert insight to the main event previews last week. Uh, We will be back next week when we will be looking ahead to not just one, but two Showtime fight cards, a rare Wednesday Showbox telecast, and then a Showtime Boxing special edition on Saturday, headlined by top 10 contenders in the deep welterweight division, uh, Sergei Lepinitz and Kudratilo Abdukakarov. Until then, thanks for listening, be safe, be kind, and be well.